Bible. It's Judges chapter 2, verse 6. And Joanne's going to read that section today. Judges chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. This is one of those passages where there's a few shocks in the passage. You kind of, I was shocked by the, um, the probably predictable fickleness of the people and also by the extraordinary faithfulness of God in this passage. Um, so starting at verse 6, which is on page 171. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110, and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at timnath Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt, sorry, brought them out of Egypt, they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving and worshipping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed those nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. These are the nations the Lord left to test all those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. He did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians and the Hivites living in the Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath. 
they were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the Lord's commands which he had given their forefathers through Moses. The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. Amen. Uh, let's pray. Father, thanks again for your word and we pray for your spirit now to be changing our minds and shaping our hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen. I wonder if you've noticed that the media is often all too willing to commentate on <clears throat> declining numbers of attendance at churches and what we should do if we really want to uh, uh, become more relevant to society. Uh, I, as I've read in commentators in recent times in particular, and it's, it's interesting getting unsolicited advice on how to do church by the people who don't even believe in God. But um, anyway, they, they tend to say that uh, we should just get back to the basics of what Jesus taught. Just, just love your neighbour and, and you know, don't be so narrow-minded about God and about humanity and about sin. And you know, just be a bit more open-minded and do that and we'll be successful. Sadly, sometimes they do have a point about loving our neighbour, don't they? But the, this desire for us to gain acceptance, particularly acceptance from the world, can be so powerful that we're, we're even tempted to water down uh, what we believe on issues where the teaching of the Bible uh, doesn't fit with the narrative of our culture. Uh, we're, we're tempted to think if only if we approved what the world believes in then the world would approve of us and we'll all just get on fine together we'll have a great future uh, in our society so you've probably noticed that on the odd occasion when a church either a denomination or individual church puts out some kind of a statement where they um, approve of immorality what happens in the media? They get applauded, don't they? They get uh, held up as being the example of the progressive, the relevant, the church that's truly got a future and is really one of us. Now, of course, the question is, will we obey God's truth and trust in the promises of his word? Or will we compromise and will we do deals with our world? This morning we head back into the Old Testament. It's been great going through Romans, hasn't it? But uh, we're heading back into the Old Testament and uh, you might remember if you've been with us for a while that at the beginning of this year we fin finished up the book of uh, Joshua. And so we're going to pick up the storyline of the Bible uh, now in the book of Judges, which follows on from Joshua. Now, Judges, it's a great book. I love reading Judges. Cassie's been reading Judges in the Quiet Times recently and I get these comments from Cassie. Scott, I haven't read this for a while. Wow, there's some really interesting, colourful characters in Judges and um, some bloodthirsty stories. We, we get colourful characters like Samson and Delilah and Gideon and his fleeces and Deborah and a cast of thousands. 
It's going to be a great uh, journey through the book of Judges. You're looking forward to it? I uh, recommend that you read it at home as well and uh, so that you get the whole gist of the story. But before we dive into chapter 1, I, I think it's helpful just to recap a little bit about Israel's history up to this point in time. Uh, it was When we worked through the book of Exodus uh, a couple of years ago, we saw how God miraculously rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And in the book of Joshua, uh, we saw how Joshua took over from Moses and it was Joshua who led the people of Israel across the Jordan River uh, into the promised land. And this was really significant because way back in Genesis, as far back as Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Genesis 17, that God had promised Abraham a people, a land and a blessing. And with Israel entering into the land we see uh, those, the fulfilment of those promises unfolding. But it wasn't simply a matter of walking in and just setting up house because there were people that lived there, lots of people that lived there. And the book of Joshua recounts for us the initial invasion and the, of the land and the conquering of, of cities. But what we see is we now come into Judges, is that there are actually still Canaanite peoples living in the land. A couple of reasons for this. Uh, one is that uh, uh, during the time of Joshua, not everybody was driven out. Um, but secondly, in the, when Israel invaded in the time of Joshua, they might have conquered cities, but they didn't occupy those cities. And over time, people have drifted back uh, into them. And so there are therefore still more battles to be fought. Now, some Christians really struggle with this whole idea of God being behind a, um, a, a, a military campaign which is violent. And it raises the question, is God just? Uh, some say that well, no, this is actually sub-Christian and we really ought to be discarded. We shouldn't believe it. But what we've seen is that this is actually God's judgment because the Canaanites knew about God. And we saw that in Romans chapter 1, isn't it? That God has revealed himself to uh, Gentiles through his creation, but people choose to ignore the crea creation and worship and serve the creator instead. The Canaanites knew about God, but they worshipped gods of their own invention, such as Baal and Asherah. Let me say a few words about Baal and Asherah worship. This was a fertility cult, uh, which meant that, uh, that if, if the land was to produce a harvest, then that would depend on a sexual union which would take place between these two gods, Baal and Asherah. And in order to initiate the heavenly, this heavenly union, the worshipper would actually have sex with a prostitute in, uh, in a temple. And the, what's referred to as the Asherah poles, uh, well, they were the venue of worship, but these were actually phallic symbols. That's kind of not the sort of stuff you want to hear talked about in church, is it? But 
Unless we understand the... And there was all sorts of really wicked stuff that was connected to it as well. But unless we understand the gravity of this, and we're not actually going to understand just how offensive this is to God, and therefore uh, why it is that God brings his judgment upon the peoples of Canaan. And he does so through the armies of Israel. That's what it's about. More than that, if Israel was to be a holy nation, then they would need to live separately from the idol worshippers. Because if they are living with them, amongst them, a fusion would take place and Israel would adopt the uh, false worship of the Baal worshippers. And so that's the reason why they were to clear the land of these people entirely. Um, in Joshua ch chapter 23, God, Joshua had reminded them of God's promise. And they had two options. Number one, if they obeyed the law of Moses if they did no deals with their enemies, if they were committed to being involved in driving those enemies out, then guess what? God is going to do the job for them. God would grant them success. That's option one. Option two is to, uh, uh, to make deals with the enemy, uh, to not be committed to being involved in driving out the nations, and the result of that would be that um, God would withdraw his blessing. He would fight for them. And those nations would become a thorn in Israel's side for the long term. So it's a clear choice. Trust God and enjoy success or compromise and suffer failure. So how did they go? <clears throat> well, I've got to tell you, they got off to a great start. Um, if, if you got your Bibles open, uh, Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? Now, this is a great moment. Israel was now poised for advance and they asked God, well, who should go up first? And it was the, uh, the tribe of, uh, of Judah um, together with the Simeonites that they went into battle and the Lord gave them victory. In fact, uh, verses 2 right the way through to verse 18 is a recital of victory after victory after victory as they drove people out. And the typical description of it, it's very normal for <clears throat> documents of that day. They would announce who the enemy uh, was, uh, then they would engage in the battle uh, then the enemy would be described as being defeated. They would list the casualties and then tell what was the fate of the king of the enemy. And that is repeated time and time again. But there's this kind of little intriguing story which kind of cuts into the, into the narrative here. And I think we see it in verse, uh, verse 11. Remember Caleb? Caleb was the guy who was in his 80s who, um, <coughs> who wanted to get in there and fight the, the, uh, the Anakites, who were, the, were the, uh, the really big, strong enemies. 
of God. And uh, so this, this guy was a guy who was not into retirement, Caleb. Now, Caleb here, he sets out a challenge and he says, Will any man who will go in and fight against um, Kiriath, uh, the, the people living in Debur, um, well, I'll give my daughter's hand to that man in marriage. <clears throat> and there's a guy called Othniel. And he says, yep, I'm up for the job. Um, must have checked out the daughter beforehand, I imagine. He knew what the stakes were here. <laughs> but <clears throat> he said, I'm up for the job. I trust in God. He went in there. He, he uh, won the battles. And then we're told that uh, the, his new wife was given land by the father, or the couple are given land by Caleb, and then she asks him, well, can I have some um, land with some uh, water flowing through it as well? And he gives it to them in addition. And so you think to yourself, well, what, you know, that's a nice little story, but what's it doing in there? I think the point of the story is that the land was there for the taking. <laughs> that's the point of it. All you've got to do is just trust God and the land with water, you, you're set up for life. That's the point of the story. Now, it was a great start, but it didn't take long for the cracks to start to uh, show up as well and for there to be a bit of a bad finish. Have a look at chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because... Why? Well, because the people of the plains, they had iron chariots. Now, these were, um, <clears throat> these were timber chariots, but they had iron fittings. And what that meant was that they were, they were bigger. And so you could fit up to four men on a chariot, uh, two men who were specialists in attack, two men who were specialists in defence. And this was the superior military hardware of the time. And Israel had no chariots. But to say that the Lord was with them in the hills, but they could not win on the plains because they were up against iron chariots, well, it's a bit strange, isn't it? I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, I know that Pharaoh's army, they just sort of like had single-man chariots, but the whole army was swallowed up by the sea. <laughs> and in the book of Judges, Judges, Israel came up against an army that had, yeah, just the standard chariots, horses and chariots, but the Lord arranged that the battle took place in the hill country where the chariots were of no use and they were defeated. And later on, we're going to read of Deborah and the victories that God brought. See, what's going on here? Have a look also at verse 21. Uh, the Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. And, and down in verse 20, 34, uh, the people of the tribe of, of Dan they were actually confined by the Amorites into the hill country. They, the, the Amorites actually kept them trapped in the hill country. What's, what's going on here? Well, the issue is that fear had overcome faith. 
I mean, they were happy to trust God when it was man against man, but when the enemy is equipped with the latest military hardware and technology, well, that's a different matter. They weren't quite so keen so that soon, you know, cannot became will not. They wouldn't even have a go at it. That's the nature of trust, isn't it? And sometimes we find ourselves in situations where to obey God's word is going to bring us into conflict with our culture and uh, is going to be difficult for us to maintain our position. Uh, Sometimes we're going to be making decisions which make no sense at all to worldly people. But as we trust and obey, we find that God is faithful and that God will use our faithfulness, use that situation to somehow bring about his glory. And so we don't go all wobbly at the knees and back down when the going gets tough. When we go through tough times in life where there's opposition, uh, we need to uh, set our minds on God and keep on doing the things that God wants us to do and allow him to take care of those consequences. Right? Which is not like Israel, who now also started to cut some deals with the enemy. We see this in verse 22. Let me read that section for you. Now the house of Joseph attacked Bethel, and the Lord was with them. When they sent men to spy out Bethel, formerly called Luz, the spies saw a man coming out of the city and they said to him, show us how to get into the city and we will see that you are treated well. So he showed them and they put the city to the sword but spared the man and his whole family. He then went to the land of the Hittites where he built a city and called it Luz, which is, which is its name to this day. Now, just to remind you of another story from the book of Joshua. Remember when the 12 spies were checking out Jericho and Rahab the prostitute? Well, there's a couple of differences because in the Rahab story, uh, it was Rahab who took the initiative. And after she helped the Israelites, she became an Israelite. <laughs> She became one of God's people. In fact, she's uh, one of the ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, However, in this situation, it's the Israelites who are just wanting the expedient way to deal with this issue. They are the ones who take the initiative. And after they attacked the city, what did the man do? Well, he just went up the road and started up another city, (laughs) another pagan city. That's not the idea. The idea was to drive these people out. So, great start, but bad finish. As one by one, the tribes of Israel just compromised and failed to drive the other nations from the land. Now, of course, it would be nice if in the Middle East today there were a few more leaders willing to make compromises, wouldn't wouldn't it? So, you know, people could actually live in peace with one another and, you know, in Israel, not 
build big walls to keep people, all that sort of stuff. We can say that because the land of Israel is no longer special. Because the, the gospel of Jesus, as we've seen in Romans, has broken down this Jew and Gentile barrier. So God's kingdom is a, a heavenly kingdom. It's a worldwide kingdom. It's not confined to a block of real estate in the Middle East. But before the coming of Christ, Israel was to be separate so that they would be free from the pollution of the idolatry and that they would be a genuine light to the Gentiles. That's what they were to do. And yet Israel preferred to do deals with their neighbours than to stick to their deal with God. They thought they'd be better off. They thought uh, life would be a bit easier. Uh, it's like, I call this bubble bath Christianity. You know, get the image there where you just sort of soak back into it and enjoy it and be comfortable rather than dealing with sin in our lives. Friends, sin has its consequences and so in chapter 2, God sent a messenger to Israel. We're going to read that, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you and you shall not make a covenant with the people of the land, which they're doing, but you shall break down their altars, which they're not doing. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Now therefore I tell you that I will not drive them out before you. They will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a snare to you. So Israel had said, look, we're not actually comfortable with the idea of driving out these nations. You know, they've got iron chariots. It's a bit tough. And so God says, all right, have it your way. You want to live with them? Live with them? But... You're going to, they're going to be a thorn in your side. And you too will end up worshipping Baal. Punishment fits the crime, doesn't it? And that's still the case with God. Because in our, um, in our world, people say to God, look, I know you exist, I know you're out there, uh, but really I'd rather if you didn't really have much to do with my life. Thank you very much. And God's judgment is on the last day when the Lord Jesus returns and when all people are judged. In a sense, God says, okay, you, you don't want me in your life? I'll withdraw completely forever. And that's hell. Hell is the absence of God. And it's eternal. You don't want that. Now, the rest of the book of Judges uh, tells the story of how Israel's compromise... Uh, did make life difficult for them. And as time rolled on, it only got worse and worse. Uh, in chapter 2, verses 6 through to 15, we read that compromise led to ignorance. Because the, the reality was this, that the, um, the adults, uh, they were doing deals with the world, uh, they weren't trusting in God, and so they did not pass on the knowledge of God to their children so that 
generations grew up who did not know of God, who were ignorant of God, and it did not know how God had acted, all of his wonderful deeds in terms of bringing Israel out of Egypt. They didn't know that history. They didn't know it. And so therefore, they were simply, uh, they were absorbed and they became immersed in the culture around them and they became Baal worshippers. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> There's been uh, great joys ministering in this church over 20 years, but one of the sadnesses I found is watching Christian parents, parents actually make those kind of compromises. Um, there's been times when I've known of uh, Christian parents who have gone and signed their children up for activities which they know full well will mean that that will preclude their children from being able to get to uh, youth group on Friday nights um, or church on Sundays. Right, so I've had parents come and say to me, said, look, you're not gonna be, you won't see us for a few months because we've just gone and signed up the kids for such and such. Or our, our kids won't be getting to youth group on Friday nights over the next half of the year or so because they've just gone and joined so-and-so. And I kind of scratch my head I, because I've been around long enough <clears throat> to know that down the track, uh, the same parents are saying, well, what's happened to my kids? Why aren't my kids serving the Lord? You reap what you sow. And if we're not investing in the next generation, if we're not um, shaping life so that it reflects the pr that priority that says that we want the knowledge of the Lord to be passed on to the next generation, that they might love and serve and trust in Him, then they'll become like the rest of the world. And there's no surprises in that. Teach our children. Shape our lives, shape our, the structure of our lives so that we give our kids the very best opportunity to get to know God and to know all that he's done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would be firmly established and move on from strength to strength and flourish in him. But friends, God was merciful to Israel. Um, chapter 2, verse 16. Well, let's go to verse 15, actually. <clears throat> Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he promised. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they did not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves that's a strong word isn't it prostituted themselves to other gods and worshiped them unlike their fathers they quickly turned from the ways in which their fathers had walked the way of obedience to the lord's commands whenever the lord raised up a judge for them he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies for as long as the judge lived the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. Right. So we're going to hear some amazing stories in Judges. 
um, Gideon, Samson and Delilah. You've got to come next week for the assassination of Ehud. It's a great story of intrigue and political drama and this guy who gets stabbed in the... Come next week, find out about it. But what these verses here do is they they summarise for us a a cycle of behaviour which is repeated throughout the book. And the, the cycle goes something like this, that God blesses Israel... Uh, but then Israel compromises in their obedience and then God withdraws his hand so they are defeated and therefore oppressed by their enemies and then they cry out to God for his help and God raises up a judge. Now what they mean by a judge is a, is a, is a leader, um, not a king, they didn't have, God was their king. They didn't need a king like the nations around. God was their king. But God raises up a judge there, mostly men. Deborah is a lady. Uh, the judge uh, saves Israel out of their oppression. They rejoice and they're thankful to God for that. And then they start making compromises. And then God withdraws his blessing. And then, they're, and then there's this cycle that is repeated time and time again and it's d- depicted there in those verses, but that's actually like a summary of the whole of the book of, of Judges. That's, that's a cycle. So that in the end, every man does what is right in his own eyes. And there's a sense, of course, in which that's not, um, that is actually uh, true of the history of humanity, isn't it? And, and even the churches. And that's what we'll find in the book of Judges. Friends, though it's not just a cycle for Israel, it's, I'd call it a vortex. Because every time that, the, that Israel makes compromises, every time that that cycle is repeated, then Israel gets sucked more and more into its sinfulness and its hardness of heart and, uh, and deeper into sin. So that in verse 19... It says, but when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers. So each generation becomes more corrupt than the previous generation. Following other gods and serving and worshipping them, they refused to give up their evil practices and their stubborn ways. I think in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. There's no point in in just being sorrowful and weeping to God and then offering up sacrifices to God uh, because to obey is better than sacrifice. And the true sign of, of godly sorrow is that you actually don't keep on repeating your ways. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow leads to death. Friends, there is no future in compromising with God's word because compromise and spiritual defeat go hand in hand. See one, you will always see the other. God told his people, if you obey my word, I will drive out your enemies. 
So trust me. Now, of course, God has spoken a word to us, has he not? I uh, <clears throat> did once see a, a Christian leader interviewed on television and uh, the interviewer asked that kind of question that the secular press is interested in and the interviewer asked, do you think that the church has much of a future in Australian society? How would you answer that? How have you seen it answered? I mean, he could have said, well, if the church just becomes a bit more open-minded, if the church is just a bit less literal about the Bible and just more connected with... with then he could have said that. But he actually said this, I remember it. He said, well, if the church continues to preach that Jesus died to pay for sins and rose again for eternal life then the church has got a great future. Wow. No compromise. I thought that was a great moment in Australian television, actually, <laughs> to have the gospel shared like that. Now, do you want to see God's kingdom grow in our world? Is that what you want? Of course you do. Then we need to take God at his word. We need to trust God, even when to do so is hard, and make no compromises about the gospel. For Paul says in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why is he not ashamed? Because it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. <laughs> There's no compromise that can be made. The gospel, in all of its truth, all of its fullness, is the power of God to save people. A church which compromises on God's truth, well, that's a church which is already defeated, and rightly so. Now, what then about our own lives? You know, uh, from what I've read, um, there are plenty of armies that have won a battle, but yet they have lost the war or they have unnecessarily prolonged the war because they didn't follow through. They didn't have the stomach to finish the job. They turned a blind eye to the pockets of resistance that then grew up and defeated them. Israel didn't have the stomach for it, to trust in God. And they were willing to accommodate sin in their land. Sometimes we're too willing to accommodate sin in our lives. We're very happy to be saved and we really want God's blessing but we don't want to deal with the issues of our priorities or the issue of our anger or our selfishness or our materialism or whatever it is in your life that needs to be driven out we kind of like that bubble bath Christianity metaphor now baby animals are generally cute aren't they there is an African saying that goes something like this small leopards become big leopards and what do big leopards do they kill Small leopards become big leopards and big leopards kill. 
And it's often, I think, the small um, compromises that we make, um, those small areas of sin where we, we just tolerate them. And over time, they, they fester and they grow and they, they kind of become who we are. And they damage our relationship with God. Spiritual compromise leads to spiritual defeat. The lesson here is if we trust and obey God's word, that's when we grow. And that's when God will bring about victories in our life for the sake of his glory and his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you are faithful to your promises. Uh, Lord, we confess that uh, we have uh, made compromises, that we have tolerated sin, and uh, that we've been sometimes more eager to please the world than to please you. Father, help us uh, through your word and your spirit to change that and to be uh, men and women who trust you, no matter what the world says, and no matter what worldly consequences there may be, uh, knowing that uh, as we trust and obey, that you actually bring about your goodwill and your good purpose for our world and indeed for our lives. Uh, these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.